0: And uh, I want to start the message. Uh, we're walking through these Ten Commandments. And one of the things about walking through things is that it gives you an opportunity to say things that you would normally dodge. And so, uh, this is one of those sermons I would probably never preach if it wasn't mandated because it's in the Ten Commandments, because it's just not something that I feel comfortable with. In that, I come to you as a massive, massive hypocrite this morning. Uh, this has been chronically an issue in my life, specifically in ministry. Uh, this idea of taking rest, this idea of setting boundaries, this in, this idea, and it sounds it sounds good, doesn't it? In the Midwest, it's like work hard, and, and I say work hard from a different perspective because for me, working hard doesn't mean that I am always at church and I'm, I'm always, you know, it, it means that emotionally I'm always going that that about probably ten thousand people in Aberdeen have my cell phone number and uh, that I currently right now have a thousand unread text messages, and so I, I come at it maybe from a different. And they were like, well, that's just irresponsible. But someone called me out on that basketball game yesterday. But that's when the church changed. That's kind of how my life changed. And it has taken me a long time to catch up to living in this type of reality. And I don't think I ever fully have. And so then when I'm reading the backstory of the Sabbath, when I'm reading The command of the Sabbath, I'm looking at my own life going, ah, man, someone else like is Micah or Greg available this weekend to give this topic because I'm I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at it. And and it sounds like in the Midwest, well, he works hard, um, kind of. I think it's more of a savior complex, so it shouldn't be that flattering and it's kind of cringy. And so it's starting, God's revealing some things in my heart and I want him to reveal some things in your heart so you can learn from me. And the reason my voice is going out is because I am overdoing it right now. Friday, I had a wedding rehearsal. Friday night, I had to because God told me go with the middle school and go to a levity. Saturday, I had a basketball game in the afternoon. Saturday evening, yesterday, I had a wedding. After the wedding, I felt that like it wasn't enough. So I drove to Mitchell and watched my other son's basketball game, and I got back at two in the morning. And that's just kind of the schedule that I'm rolling with right now. That all my kids are in sports. And I want to be different than my dad, and I have refused to let ministry be a hindrance, and so I'm just going to do it all. And then what happens, right? You thrive. No, you crash and you burn. And what happens is you get out of alignment. And so as we get started, let me tell you a quick story. Because I think I was thinking about what, what is the heart of the Sabbath? What does it do? What does it do for the church? What does it do for you individually? Well, I think it keeps you in alignment. And then using that metaphor... Um, it made me think of my own alignment issues with my cars. And so if you know me personally, you know that I like to buy cars that are wrecked and then try to have someone else fix them up for me and uh, beg, steal, and borrow favors until I can get it done. And so I have a fleet of cars. The Johnson, you know, you remember that place called Rod's Deals on Wheels by Mazatlan's? I was like the first Rod's Deals on Wheels. In fact, he's been at church. I've actually met him, and uh, I said, oh my goodness, people already called me that before you ever opened that place, and now it's closed, and I thought, that's prophetic, and now you're at New Life, but uh, I was the first Rod's Deals on Wheels by necessity because uh, Ann stayed at home when the kids were little, and I was a youth pastor, and we were broke upon broke, and so um, you just, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so uh, we always have had cars that are a little less than desirable, and so Uh, I have a fleet of cars, I'm currently driving a 97 Buick, and uh, don't ask me why because all the other cars are nicer but somehow the rest of the family has those and uh, this one doesn't have four wheel drive and so my kids are driving four wheel drive cars on Richmond Road in the winter and I've got the 97 Buick, we call it Brown Betty because it's brown and I don't know how that started but uh, we bought it from the guy playing a saxophone for $500 a few years ago and it it just doesn't quit and so I drive that car, it's been the most reliable in the fleet. But each time we get something, uh, there's something wrong with it. And so uh, I had this white truck. It's, it's, it's actually a really nice truck. It's the nicest car I've ever had. And my middle child's driving it right now. But uh, when I got it, Welton, who's in church this morning, he's my right-hand man, uh, he started fixing things. And at the end of fixing things, he told me something. He said, go get the alignment fixed. I'm driving that thing, and I'm going, well, that's like 200 bucks. And 200 bucks is, you know, that's a lot of Big Macs. And so... It doesn't really need it. It's just kind of a slight alignment issue. So it's a want, not a need. And I drive it a few months, and then two of my tires are bald. And I said, "Well, I need new tires. He goes, you didn't get the alignment fixed, did you? I said, it uh, just so happens I didn't. And so he said, well, I've got these uh, used tires I'll put on there, and then go get your alignment fixed. And, he, and it came with some old-school rims that are still on there. And uh, those were, like, free of charge because that's Welton. And so I got these Almost new tires, and then I thought, well, I have almost new tires, and the alignment doesn't seem that bad. I'm sure that the tires were already bad. It wasn't the alignment, so I'm not gonna worry about it. And a few months later I called Welton. I said, Welton, two of my tires are bald. He said you didn't get the alignment fixed. I said, No, I didn't get the alignment fixed. This happens again. This happens again, and then finally the Lord speaks to me through Welton. He says, You need to get your alignment fixed. And so I did just that and it cost me a pretty penny to be so stupid. But I thought about the, the, the lens of alignment and, and like how that works with your car. And, and the tricky part about alignment, is it not? Is that it's subtle? And then over a period of time it, it blows out your tires and over a period of time if you don't have your hand on the wheel, if even if it's gradual, you go into a ditch, you crash and burn. Because when it comes to alignment, the subtle reality alignment is what gets you from taking care of the problem, and when you don't care, care of the problem, you can blow everything up. And I feel like that's a really good analogy. And you can walk away with that one free of charge, because that's how it works. God is then taking this day that's set apart, and he's using it to align us, because when it comes to spiritual alignment, it's not that you just one time do that until you get new tires again. No, you need to do that continually. And so I'm going to try to answer some questions today, put myself on the chopping block or you know, expose my own inadequacies as a means of knowing that you struggle with some of the same things and then ask some questions about what the Sabbath looks like and how we're supposed to respond to it. And so Exodus 28 through 11 is the text. And this is what God says to his people in the fourth commandment of the 10 underline the first word he says remember the sabbath day and then underline this next word to keep it underline holy that's the command to God's people in the old testament and then he says this he says 6 days you shall labor and if you don't like to work hard underline that too 6 days you shall labor And do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, even the livestock get a break, that's funny to me, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, here's the back story we'll get to, and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it what? He made it holy. And that word is significant. We'll get to that in just a second. So first question is this. I've been on this big question, and then subcategory, preaching frenzy in the last few months, if you haven't noticed. It actually started with the trauma series. I thought this was a way for us to learn. And so if you are in live stream, follow me. First question, how should we understand the Sabbath? What's the backstory? Well, what does God say to his people? He says to them very specifically, he says, remember it. And so to remember something from the past and make it live in the present and then live on to the future is how you remember something. And he says, don't just remember it, but keep it holy. And then we've talked about this before. Maybe you'll remember there's a definition to holy in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what holy means is to be consecrated, to be set apart. And so there's this time in your life that, Although you should be spending time with God continually, there's this consecrated effort to set him apart so that you can align. And what I know as a therapist is when you don't do this, it wreaks havoc on all sorts of areas of your life, and so God knows what he's talking about. And so the backstory is simple. God did this, and we're to do this. And so how, how do you know if you're violating the Sabbath? Well, here's a, just a real key simple indicator. There's seven days in the week and all seven days look the same. And so if there's no separation, if there's no set apart, and it's just, you know, Monday doesn't look any different than Sunday, and I don't think, and we'll get to this as well, I don't think it's one of those prescriptive things where it has to be on this date and this time. I think that's legalism, and we'll cover that. But it is this idea, and there's this moral principle attached to it, that if you don't take a break, you'll break. If you don't believe me, just keep on the trajectory that you're going. So God knows this, and God says, there needs to be this time where all seven days don't look the same. And then there's a definition to the Sabbath as well. It's this idea of cessation of work or rest. The common thought would be, spiritually, and even physically and literally, it's your day off. Americans, we hijacked two days off. And so in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was Saturday. In the New Testament, Jesus rises on the Sunday, which is actually the first day of the week. And when Jesus rises on the first day of the week, it becomes the new Sabbath for the early church. It never changes. And then Americans, in our true glutton form, we say, well, let's just have both. We'll have a Saturday and a Sunday where we just hang out. And so God is giving the law to the people, and he's saying there needs to be a day off. There needs to be a recalibrating. There needs to be an alignment that takes place. But don't miss something. This is interesting. I shared this with the leadership team before church. There's kind of two commands in this text, and you look at the second one because it is the core command, but you miss something that God says to do within it. He says that you're to work hard for six days and then take the seventh day, just like God did, and apply rest to it. And so there are two major idols that all of us struggle with, depending on how you were raised. And also depending on the time frame in which you were raised, because certain generations get this better than others, you tend to worship one of these two false idols. In fact, all of us fall in one of these two camps. You either worship work or you worship comfort. So don't miss that. He's saying you need to take a Sabbath day, but what does he say before that? There are six days in the week where you're supposed to work hard, and when you don't work hard for six days, what you're doing is you're still worshiping something, but you're worshiping the God of comfort, and that's going to have all sorts of detrimental realities to it, and it's not about the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is work. Like, Like when we, I don't know what your view is of heaven, but everything I understand about heaven biblically is it's not just, you know, there's a baby playing a harp. That there's work in heaven as well, that God worked, that he created the heavens and the earth and that he's working his plan. He's strategic in his plan, so he's not lazy and he's not idle. The fourth commandment is not just about the Sabbath, right, but also it's about the other commandments that precede it. And the other commandments that precede it, you see in that second command, the Bible says very clearly, don't worship false what? False idols, And so depending on whether or not your God is work or comfort, it's going to expose false idols in your life. Let me give you an example. If you worship the God of work in your life, the false idols that will start manifesting as a result, or maybe a better way of saying it is the the sacrifice, because no matter our false idol, there's a sacrifice attached to it, the sacrifice of Idolizing work in your life is your health, your blood pressure, your anxiety, early heart attacks, weight gain. If all you do is work, there's gonna be realities to it. You're gonna pay the price. And this one's really sad. Your your children, Cats in the Cradle is a real song that connects for a reason, right? That's that's why I'm not I'm saying I've got a busy schedule, but I'm gonna drive to to Mitchell, right or wrong. And I don't want to put my kids on the altar of my weird schedule. Or or it's your marriage, or you're too busy to go to church, you're too busy to fellowship with God's people, you're too busy to take some time off and just spend some time with God. And And then when you worship, work, and your false idol is exposed, and the sacrifice is put on the table or the altar. Here's some telltale signs. You're burning yourself out, you're self-focused, you're unhealthy, you're unhappy. No one wants to tell you that loves you, but if they were to be honest with you, they would tell you that you have a selfish streak to you that gets a bit old. And all these things start manifesting in your life. Here's the other one, and we'll only hit this for a little while because it's not the main point, but what about when you get the Sabbath thing, but for you the Sabbath is seven out of seven. You're so worried about burning out, but it's like, you should probably worry about crossing that imaginary bridge once you get a job, because you're far from burning out, and your problem is comfort, and when your idol is called comfort, it manifests in trying to work as little as possible, and the God of comfort is worshipped with seven consecutive Sabbath days, where your primary focus is a young man who's 20, 25 years old is it's doing all your extracurriculars over and over and over again. And maybe it even this cool stuff that should calm you down. But it's like you don't hunt one day a week. You hunt every day. You don't play a little video games. You play a lot of video games. Social media is your key stronghold in your life, maybe more specifically if you're female. And, and you, your main problem is you don't have enough going on. And you worship the God of comfort. And God is saying, you need six days here where you're busting it. You're working hard. It's not in the Bible, but I think it's true, right? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. It's true. And your whole reality is analysis paralysis, and it's like you come into counseling sessions with pastors, and you're constantly processing, but you're never doing. And you're overthinking because you have too much time to think. Older generations, just a stereotype, tend to worship work. Younger generations tend to worship comfort, and at the center of our life should not be comfort. At the center of our life should be productive life, following the Lord. And so, uh, so this reality creeps in. I was scrolling through Yahoo, probably not the best place to get your news. There's a definite bend to it, but I think it's important to stay balanced and look at different news feeds and news sources. And I was, I found this thing and I thought, well, if it's on Yahoo, then. I don't know, it just kind of piqued my interest that this story would be on Yahoo. But there's a guy by the name of Mike Rowe. I think, I think he was the one who was the host of the Dirty Job Show. Is that accurate? Mike Rowe did an article that attached itself to Yahoo. And he brought this objective reality to life that's not negotiable. It's just facts that don't have feelings. And uh, he said, seven million American prime age men are done looking for work. They've punched out. Seven a million American prime-age men between the ages of 25 and 54 are clocking out of the workforce despite, in December, 517,000 new jobs created in America alone. So what Mike Rose said is, he said, what is scary in the U.S. right now is that we have never had so much unrealized opportunity and so little enthusiasm for it. <coughs> it said this, prime-age men work uh, spend around 2,000 hours a year on screens do little housework, and spend the least amount of time in modern history volunteering in anything. I was at this uh, first responders banquet, and I sat next to the fire chief and the police chief and uh, the highway patrol. And I said, man, it must be hard to get these jobs because you see them in uniform. it's like, man, if you just had a job like this, you'd never be single again because... You just look cool in your uniform. And I was joking around about it with him. And he said, well, kind of, but it used to be that way, and now it's totally different. The highway patrol guy said, we used to have so many applicants for our jobs, and now we put the applications out, and uh, we put the appeal out, and it's like two people apply, and the two people that apply aren't even the best candidates. And it speaks to this reality that there are two swords that we can die on. And so that has to be dealt with right out of the gate. What is the Sabbath? What is the framework for it? It's work hard and take a day off. And then the New Testament comes along, like I said, when we opened, and it's this question of, well, what day is it? And I think it's just critical to to bring this to light before we go any further, that God is way less concerned about when we worship than he is about who we worship. Because you can get really legalistic with issues like this. And just to kind of bring something to light, a religion that's not built on relationship, I had a lot of Mormon friends growing up. There was a temple right by my house. And so we would hang out, but not on Sundays. Do you ever have a Mormon friend? I can say that pretty safely. There's not a lot of Mormons, you know, pro- you know. But it's not even a knock on them, it's just, it's just this reality that this is how it is. And so then all the days of the week they could never drink caffeine. And then on Sunday it's like they couldn't do anything and they followed this letter of the law because it's a works-based religion. I listened to a pastor this week who spent some time in Israel and he said on the Sabbath, which is their Saturday, he was in an elevator. And when he was in this elevator, they had a regular elevator, this is legalism. And then they had a Sabbath elevator. And you're like, well, why would you have a Sabbath elevator? Well, let me tell you why. It's because, according to Orthodox Jews, you can use absolutely no technology on the Sabbath. And so a Sabbath elevator just stops at every floor because God can't stand when you have to push the button on the Sabbath. And if you weren't in the Sabbath elevator, you better find someone that's not an Orthodox Jew so that you can say in the elevator, floor five or floor seven or floor nine, because it's not wrong to tell someone else to do something that violates the Sabbath, but for you, man, that's an offense against God. And so, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that can't be what God means when it comes to consecrating yourself for a day that's set apart for him. And then we have this reinforced with Jesus in the Gospels when the Pharisees get mad at him for healing on the Sabbath. What does Jesus say? Was was the Sabbath made for man or was the man made for the Sabbath? He starts picking apart their legalistic arguments. And so then Sunday becomes the Sabbath in the New Testament because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And then Acts 27 says on the first day of the week the church gathered together and it's never changed because God as we understand the Sabbath, isn't concerned about the when but the who. So we come together on Sunday and it's critical and it's a way to remember. So we observe it. And as we walk through this process, here's the second question. Write it down. This is where it goes from here's the background to here's the application. So if we know we're supposed to set apart this time, which in modern history, Americans are doing less than ever before, evidenced by low church attendance. New life, look at me when I tell you this, look at me. New life's a unicorn, okay? New life's a unicorn. There are still a lot of people that come and worship. But across the board, church attendance is is plummeting and churches are closing. And so why do we consecrate this time, this holy day? Well, number one, we do so to better understand Jesus. No one worked harder than Jesus. He he lives a perfect life. He dies a perfect death. He raises from death. He's ministering to people constantly. But even within all of that framework, what does Jesus Christ himself do? He takes time. He he rests. He spends time with God the Father. and And he sets himself apart. Repeatedly in the Gospels. He goes off and he spends time with God. And he goes to the synagogue as well, and then he follows the Sabbath. And so we want to be like Jesus. We want to repeat that cycle. And so another thing is we do this thing called Sabbath to connect with Jesus and each other. And we say, there's going to be this time in my life, although it should be something that's happening continually, but there's going to be this consecrated time where I quit making excuses and I tell myself, This is what God's heart is. This is what he has for me. I believe that he knows what he's talking about. I believe that he is over me and his rules matter. And so I'm going to cut out all the peripheral excuses and I'm going to consecrate this time right here, right now, where we're all coming together and we're worshiping together. And I'm going to believe that he knows what's best. And I'm going to consecrate that to him. The Sabbath isn't even just about making time for things or even just about alone time with God. The Sabbath is deeper than that. It's about making time for people because people matter. And so we come together collectively and then we go our separate ways. And when we come together collectively, we understand something. And what we understand is this, that of all the things that matter, people are at the top of the list. There's God and there's people And of all the things that we're not taking to heaven with us, the things that we're trying to take to heaven with us are people. And so God's economy is built on relationships. It's a scary thought if you think about it. I mean, think about all the people that you've ever been to church with over the years in a small community that maybe in some way you've had a riff with. And now think about this, and everyone pay attention. That person you're sitting next to, or you see across the aisle that you used to be employed by where things kinda got riffed, but they love Jesus and you love Jesus, and they're not perfect and you're not perfect. Here's what's scary if you don't build relationships that are focused on the kingdom of God. You're gonna see them for the next gazillion years. So you better figure it out, right? So people matter. God's economy is relational. The people of God, unlike things that you can't be buried with, live on. Here's another reason we celebrate the Sabbath, and this is where I start putting myself on the chopping block and expose myself. That sounded weird. Um, Sorry, talking out loud. I expose the realities in my life, okay? Well, Another reason we say take the Sabbath seriously. Greg's laughing me at the sound booth is we do so to stay healthy. Because here's what I know, and I heard someone else say this, I'm gonna steal this. The person that has the most capacity to damage me, it's me. Is that true of you? I know other people have hurt you and you come to this place and you've been hurt. But if you just look at it objectively, over the course of however many years you've been alive, and if you're still young, just wait. The person that's been the most damaging in your life tends to be, because we're all sinners, is yourself. And so God gives us this time. It's like God knows what he's doing. God gives us this time. He says, I'm perfect, and this is what I did. I worked hard six days. Seventh day, I took a break. I'm asking you to work hard because working hard is godly. And then I need you to take a break. I need you to realign. I need you to recalibrate. Because when you don't, chaos can absolutely go wild between your ears. Things can get pretty bizarre in your own mind if you don't do this, and so you're to stay healthy. If you don't take a break, you will break. If you don't take a Sabbath voluntarily, chances are you will take one involuntarily. And it'll manifest in your life through stress, depression, ulcers, burnout, heart attacks, etc. And So then the question then becomes, and this is true of my own life, the question is not will you stop, but how will you stop? Will you stop willfully? Or will you stop painfully? You guys ever heard of a thing called panic attacks? Don't raise your hand, but I know statistically a lot of us have had them. You know what a panic attack is? A panic attack is your brain telling your body, I'm done. And then you have a panic attack and you think, oh my goodness, I'm dying, right? You can kind of shake your head. Statistically, so many of you have had them. It's not just general anxiety, it's I'm going to the ER because I thought I was having a heart attack and I was sweating profusely. And then the doctor said, no, 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 this is mental health. And he went, what are you talking about? I didn't even realize anything was that wrong. Well, you have lived the same pattern of dysfunction so long in your life without a Sabbath that all of these things are getting out of whack and your body's saying, no, it's a volcanic mechanism and we are shutting down. You, you think you can move on, we shut down. And so, no, you're, you're done. And so your own health is attached to God's design for your life. Alone time with God, investing in the things that matter, taking the Sabbath. Here's another one. We take this Sabbath, and the book of Hebrews tells us this, I think chapter 4. We take this Sabbath because it points us towards eternity. Now, I'm not saying, like I said earlier, it's not like you get to heaven and you just sit there and twiddle your thumbs and play Connect 4 all day. Although I like Connect 4, but... There's stuff that you do. There's a mission to be accomplished. The work is a part of the process. New heaven, new earth. We don't know exactly how it works, but we know there's going to be stuff to do. But when we work, it's not cursed anymore. And so because it's not cursed anymore, we can assume that it won't be as hard, that it'll be more enjoyable, that the fields will produce crops every time, that there'll be no crop insurance needed. And so it'll be holy work. And when there's holy work, it's relaxing. And so we see... Hebrews 4, 8 through 10, 10, that that the writer likens heaven to an eternal Sabbath. And so we prepare for eternity now. Because in the scope of eternity, this is just like one piece of sand on the sand shore. And the reality is eternity is an entire ocean. Here's the third question. I know this is kind of like a lecture in a classroom, but it will get more personal right now. What are some Sabbath killers? I just got a couple of things that I want to run by you. What are some Sabbath killers where you're going, red alert, this isn't working. I've got to change direction. God knows what he's talking about. Here's something that's actually going to kill your Sabbath or your capacity to ever even have a Sabbath. It's not like your Sabbath is even just bad. It's that it doesn't exist. There are two core reasons why, and now I'm going to put my counselor hat on. Number one, you have, write it down, you have, not me, you have terrible boundaries. And I say that facetiously because, Of all the people I know with bad boundaries, I might be the absolute worst. But you have terrible boundaries. And there's this reality that if you don't control your schedule, your schedule controls you. For the last 16 years, I have been on call 365 days a year. If I went to a counselor right now and told them that, they they would never say, oh, that's great. Wow, you must help a lot of people. How's that savior complex going? So you have terrible boundaries. And you have this idea that if if you don't do it, can you track with this? Can I at least get a head knot? Can you wake up? That if you don't do it, then it's not going to be done what? It's not going to be done right because you are the one that's the Savior. Terrible boundaries. Here's how terrible boundaries manifest. Maybe your boundaries are a result of fear of man. Your terrible boundaries are a result of insecurity, lack of direction, lack of forward thinking, poor leadership, inability to say No. Or maybe it's just a fl- an inflated ego in your life. But here's what I found to be true in my life because this is where it gets practical. The crazier the schedule, the crazier the schedule, the greater the need for the Sabbath. Or maybe you don't just have terrible boundaries but you have terrible priorities and here's where it becomes an absolute sin. Because here's where it starts creeping in on that false idol territory of your heart. That y- you have time for the Sabbath but your priorities stink. And your time and your money are telling on you. And it's not that you don't have things that you're willing to sacrifice for. It's that you don't have time to sacrifice for those things that really matter because your priorities are inverted. And you're worshiping false idols in your life, and you've never really thought about it like that before. Maybe that's why things are so out of whack. In an American culture where we have time and technology has given us more time, We choose to use our time by doing things that are completely ungodly. And because we have this spare time, here's what we usually worship. We end up tend to worship two things, our kids and ourself. Little Johnny has to go to like the eighth consecutive, and my kids do this too, so I'm just being real, right, the eighth consecutive traveling tournament because one day they might play JV at a B school, right? I mean, that's our, isn't that a lot of our, it's like, when I was a kid, if you were gonna do something like that, it's because you were on a track to be somebody athletically. Now it's just, a, it's like a money-making scheme worth billions, maybe trillions of dollars where a lot of people have figured out, you know, everyone has a false idol and most people's false idols are the kids and so what they will do if you present it from them because you don't want someone else's kid to get an advantage that your kid doesn't have, you will travel the world side to follow around the kid that struggles to do two core things. Look at me, walk and chew bubblegum. Because little Johnny needs to go places because once he goes places, then he can become the God that he's supposed to be. And it's just messed up. I'm not saying we don't do any of those things, but I'm saying, man, priorities will always tell on us how we spend our time and how we spend our money. What we invest in. And they're Sabbath killers. There's a famous pastor that broke it down like this. He said, we always worry about time management, but what we should really be focusing on is energy management. Because you can only go so long before you crash, and what goes up must come down. And when that bucket that we all have that should be consecrated to the Lord gets empty, it can create havoc. So we have terrible priorities, terrible boundaries. And here's the last question. Signs you need a Sabbath. Jesus needed a Sabbath. God created with a Sabbath in mind. He commanded the Israelites, to take a Sabbath. And here's what's funny to me about that. I was thinking this week, well, when does he make that command? Well, they just came out of, the, uh, out of Egypt. They had been enslaved. And so I, I would assume that they didn't exactly get a day off, right? And then they start pushing back on these boundaries that he puts in place. And I'm thinking, man, if, if, if in the heart of man it is so wicked And so depraved that even after coming out of slavery, you still say, God, I don't think you know best. I I don't want to take a day off. There's something fundamentally wrong with the way we take it. So if they struggle with it, we're probably going to struggle with the two. So there's these Sabbath killers. And then there's this last thing. There are signs that you need a Sabbath. And I would ask you to write them down because you're saying, well, I don't know if this is a real big issue for you. Well, let me kind of let the evidence that I've seen over the years tell on yourself. Here are some things that start happening in your life when a Sabbath is needed. Number one, and this is the last question, and in a few minutes the praise team is going to come back up. Number one, you are isolated. You are isolated, and when you have too much time to think, it can work against you. When you don't have enough time to think, it can work against you. And here's what I mean by isolation. I don't mean that you're never around people. What I mean by isolation, here's my definition. You might be around people, but no one really knows what's going on. You tracking? You're around people, and you're doing your thing, and you're going to work, and you're doing this, and you're doing that, but you're not spending time with God. And you're not letting your God take your thoughts captive and, and give you a new heart and a new mind and, and recalibrating and realigning. And so you, you're just skipping that process. You're going through the motions. You show up in church, right, and, and guilty as charged. Like, I know how to go through the motions. I, pastors can, and can play the part better than anyone. If you're not really right with the Lord, you can become absolutely a professional actor. But you're isolated, and, and in your mind, things can get pretty wild, Because you're around people, but those people don't really know you. Here's a commonsensical one you're you're just exhausted. Well, how do you know you're exhausted? Well, there's some basic realities to being exhausted that don't need to be covered, but, but here's some other evidence that you're exhausted. You care too little, or you care too much. You don't just like caffeine. You have to have it. Other signs are as such. Maybe a better way of saying it in church is you have this thing. Have you ever heard of this thing called your give a darn? And I know that's not how it's said, but that's, it's church, okay? And it's busted. It's broken. You used to care, and now you're just numb. You become an emotional zombie. Your spouse is calling you out on it. You're a dry drunk. You can't come to, wait to come home and check out. And it's insulting to God and it's painful to your family. You're just exhausted. And you're like, well, I don't know if I have this problem. Trust me. If you're married, just ask the person next to you. That thing that they're complaining about that you think isn't a very big deal, they're probably right and you're probably wrong. Or you, you need to focus in on this Sabbath because what you'll find is a tendency to run from God. You'll tend to have a tendency to run from people. You'll have a tendency to run from problems, Exhaustion manifests not just in your core relationships, but in your relationships at large. And so you love people, like you, your true self when you're you know, walking in the Holy Spirit, your true self is that you love people and that you're energized by them. But even that has a ceiling to it and you know you're exhausted when all of a sudden you see people and like you're in Walmart, I've never done this to you, but you're in Walmart and you just kinda of go the other way and it's not because you're an introvert, you're like, I'm not an introvert, but I'm exhausted. Or that that name comes up on your cell phone and your heart starts beating faster. It's because you're exhausted. And those things that normally fill you are now draining you. Here's another one write it down. Your emotions aren't just a part of your life, your emotions control you. You need a Sabbath, you need to recalibrate. All of a sudden, your spouse is saying things to you like, Why are you so angry all the time? What do you mean? it's like you're edgy like something's off or all all of a sudden your, your emotions control you in a way where they shift quickly and seemingly without reason and then here's where it gets really scary is that you have this circle that you are around this and if you're a man and a husband you're supposed to lead this circle and it's not just that your emotions are affecting you but they're starting to exhaust the people that are closest to you And so there's these things happening that you don't catch at first and then the people around you are saying, whoa, what's wrong? What's going on? I'll tell you, there could be a a lot of things going on but one of the core core, core things I promise is this idea of Sabbath. Here's another one. Your emotions are controlling you and your mind starts to play tricks on you. When you break down, when you get to the point where the panic attack is getting close and this is the level of energy you're walking in because you're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, all of a sudden you start thinking things that are crazy, you get a bit paranoid. You even get resentful to the world around you, and it's illogical, and exhaustion and resentment are related. They tend to be first cousins that hang out a lot. So all of these things are taking place in your mind, in your heart. Here's another one. I just got a couple more, and we're going to close. Here's like kind of a theological position to this whole idea. You know that you need a Sabbath, in fact. This is really scary. You know you're way off the mark when what you do starts to define who you are. That your core identity isn't in Christ, but your core identity is in how you perform. That title that you didn't think was that big of a deal, and you can just use the term pastor or whatever or doctor or, you know, it's like, well, well, who are you? I am this person. And you know your bucket's empty, and you know your priorities are off, and you know a Sabbath is desperately needed, because instead of, when you come to Christ and all that joy you have in your heart, instead of saying, man, my identity is not wrapped up in what I do, my identity's wrapped up in who I am, instead of that, you start finding that, and here's how you know it's a real issue, you start finding that if for some reason that golden calf in your life or that, you know, that sacred cow in your life is taken away, all of a sudden you're a wreck, and it's like, well, you're not a pastor anymore. Well, who are you? Well, you're a child of God. You're not this or you're not that. And so you know that this is really becoming a problem in your life when who you are isn't what defines you. It's what you do. And you're not a child of God. You're this title. And then seemingly good things become bad things. Here, here's kind of like the last one. Your soul is just restless. Makes me think of King David. Well, I don't have a specific definition for this, but you know when it happens, don't you? Your soul's just restless. King David says, in in you, my soul finds rest. Maybe one of the evidences of this would be that God is, because this is what God does, is drawing you to himself and into your agitation. You just kind of keep pushing him aside because you know something's off and you just don't want to deal with it. So your soul is restless and everything is not okay and your body is Telling on you but I want to just close with this one analogy oops I want to close with this idea why why is this such a big deal because you can look at it from a almost a selfish perspective and you can say well it's it's such a big deal and stay with me because this is important and you can almost look at it from a humanistic perspective or a self-help perspective and you can say well this is such a big deal because I'm not firing right and I need to be healthy because when I'm not healthy, I'm not happy. I'm not saying there's nothing to that because God, God wants the best, right? He doesn't want this catatonic, dysfunctional version of you that, that is surrounded by brokenness. That's not God's plan. God wants us to, to thrive so that we can glorify his son Jesus. But that's not really the core issue. I think there's a bigger issue And I think it's best explained through the metaphor, again, of your marriage. And and write this down. When we don't prioritize the Sabbath, I think the byproduct of that, at a very fundamental level, is that we're hurting the heart of God. That God is jealous, that, that God is in this relationship with this groom bride scenario. And when we don't carve out space for him, because here's what's so scary about not carving out space for God, he is keenly aware in his omnipresence, in his omniscient uh, omniscient realities of his character and nature, he is keenly aware of the things that we trade in for his time. He he knows that we're burning ourselves out to exhaustion not for things that typically matter. We're burning ourselves off to the point of exhaustion where we're worshipping false idols in our life. That it's not like, well, we, these are really great things. Most of these things are terrible. They're stupid. They're wastes of time. They're they're narcissistic at their very core. And so God's looking at us and this is what I think God is saying. He's saying, you're trading me you're trading quality time with me for that. For that. And, and I think it has to be seen through that lens because anything else and as far as motivations to change, if it's not a, a gospel-centered motivation, if it's not Jesus loves me and I want to serve Jesus, then it's just willpower that's not going to sustain. Even if it's like, well, I need to do this for me, I, that, that type of selfish motive is like a yo-yo diet. It's going to go all over the place. Here's where change really happens. It happens at a heart level where we go, I love Jesus so much, he's worth Everything that I have, he's died in my place. He's rose from the dead. He's given me new life. He's brought me into this place that that I don't deserve in a personal relationship with God Almighty, and because he's done that, this is a groom that I want to spend time with. I want to prioritize, and this holy God who's set apart, I want to be set apart with him. A a few weeks ago, I wasn't in church. You're like, I didn't notice. Well, that's disappointing. But um, I wasn't in church, and I was in the Black Hills, and it was snowing all weekend. And uh, it was Ann's 42nd birthday, which is crazy because I just turned 25. But it was her 42nd birthday. And uh, we've been together like forever. We've been together a long time. And in the rhythm of life, it's like, well, we need to go do something. And uh, typically, it's my idea because she doesn't like to do a lot of things that are adventurous. But she said to me, uh, let's go to the Black Hills. And I said, okay. And then she said something insane. She goes, and you have to know Ann. Ann goes, let's go to the Black Hills and let's go skiing. And I thought to myself, I think, I think there's a better chance of me getting struck by lightning at the top of the ski hill than me actually putting on the skis because that's not something that Ann does. And so then we get there and I said, hey, when are we going skiing? She goes, ah, I don't want to go skiing. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And it's her birthday. It's her birthday weekend. And uh, I already knew what she was going to say. She goes, I want to do a bunch of nothing. And so we did a bunch of nothing. And I get restless when I do nothing. We went out to eat once and we made a trip to Target and Walmart. And that was our vacation weekend. And so we spent this time together. We watched some Netflix. We watched some action movies from the 90s and we just hung out and there was a hot tub and we didn't see anyone and it snowed a lot and it's like we were just spending this time together we were set apart and we were working on a relationship and then all of a sudden what do you know it's like we start talking about stuff well you remember when this happened you remember that aren't our kids funny this and that it's like we there was no rocket science to the weekend it was just hey you matter and so I'm going to set apart time for you, and when I set apart time for you, all of a sudden I draw into you, and our relationship builds, and I'm telling you something by sacrificing for you, because in my flesh, the last thing I want to do is go away for a weekend, spend money, and stare it at the walls. That's not me. But husbands, sometimes, right, it's not about you, okay? And then we do that, and it's like we had such a great weekend, And there was something that was accomplished, it was a clear message sent. You are a top priority, I'm gonna make time for you despite how crazy my life gets. And I think that is the metaphor because the groom and the bride, that's the metaphor of the Sabbath. It's Jesus, you've done everything for me and I'm gonna take this time because you know best and I'm gonna set a tide time and although that needs to happen seven days a week, I'm gonna have some consecrated time where it's just you and I and you're a priority and I can make a million excuses But the reality is I'm either going to do this or I'm not. I'm either going to go to church or I'm going to stay at home. I'm either going to read my Bible or I'm going to scroll through YouTube. I'm either going to pray or I'm going to be stuck in my own mind thinking fleshly thoughts consumed with self. And it's my decision and I choose to be set apart with you in this metaphorical cabin in the hills. And sometimes we are telling God things more by what we choose not to do even than what we do. That we're going to be set apart. And then the question becomes this, are you doing that? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And as we bring an issue like this to the table and we're honest, we, we fall short. Most of us fall short. But help us to self-examine, grab our hearts, Jesus. Are we setting apart our lives in a way where you are the top priority? That You are a savior worth a Sabbath. Jesus, examine our hearts, examine our motives. We pray this in your precious and holy name and everybody said, amen, amen.